because it will happen again, whether Donald Trump is in power again or not. Um, somebody is going to see that vulnerability and say, oh, this is a great way to take over. I think actually everybody has a responsibility to share um, the knowledge because so that we can ensure that, you know, this never happens again. Um, I think when people bury their head in the sand and say, oh, yeah, this will never happen. Our democracy won't be taken over. Uh, we'll never be like other countries that, you know, um, are anti-democratic. That's when uh, trouble is brewing. Welcome, Sandra Garza. Thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. Uh, your partner, Private First Class Brian Sicknick, is one of the seven people who lost their lives in connection with the insurrection two years ago on January 6, 2020-21. What yes. would you like the public to know about Private First Class Sicknick? He was uh, such a wonderful, warm, caring, loving person. Um, and I know that, you know, when someone passes away, usually people will say those kind of sentiments, but with him, it was really true. Um, and I know I've said this before in other interviews that, um, you know, he was a really warm hearted, caring person, but I don't know too many people that will have a, a group of people. And I, and I mean, a large group of people that will not have one negative thing to say about the person. Usually most people will have, you know, a handful or a couple people say, you know, I don't really care for that person, or we kind of were on the outs, or we had a couple disagreements. After Brian's death, of course, because his death was so public, um, you know, there was a huge investigation. The FBI interviewed everybody and anybody who knew him, had contact with him. And not one single person had anything negative to say about him. I mean, if that doesn't sum up what kind of person Brian was, I don't know what would. Um, he was just such a good person. And that's why it hurts me so bad that the people that were screaming in his face and yelling at him and the two attackers who attacked him were you know, being that way to him, because had they gotten to know him, they would have really liked him, you know? So it's, it's very sad. It's very painful for me to accept that, but he was a good person. Everybody here would have liked him. They would have felt safe with him. They would have said, he's a good guy. You know, that's, that's who Brian was. So sorry, I probably went really long on that question, but that's how I feel. Hello, my name is Shada Seals. Uh, a question that I have is from your perspective and what you have witnessed in the aftermath, how did the January 6th attacks impact law enforcement more broadly and what should be done to address the ongoing psychological and health um, challenges that they face? Right, I, I saw your question, great question. Uh, definitely there was already a lot of tension uh, among the public and law enforcement to begin with. So I think once January 6th happened, I think you know it obviously made things, I, I don't wanna say a lot worse, um, but it definitely shifted, I think all, a lot of the, the focus a lot more I would say on 
tension with law enforcement and certain parts of the community. Um, and so I would say that you already had a lot of stress on law enforcement um, and within the community, certain parts of the community. And I think the stress just finally gave way um, to a point where there was just no return. Um, and then of course we had the uh, officers that uh, co committed suicide. So that definitely had a severe impact on the officers that were not only there, but officers all across the country and the world. Um, and so, I mean, suicides among police officers were happening, you know, every day. It just wasn't in the fore. But I think because it happened in such quick succession, because of January 6th, it kind of forced us to take a look at it and say, wow, we really need to take care of law enforcement officers and also look at, you know, uh, you know, what, what's going on with the community. And I mean, in this particular case, it was clearly there was a lot of uh, racism uh, and racists that had attended the, uh, the Trump, uh, you know, the January 6th stop the steal kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, I don't know if you want to call it an event or what, what you want to call it, but, um, so, you know, there was that part of it, too, that was different from what we had seen in the previous year and the years prior. But um, but I think it just kind of brought everything out into more sharp focus because it was such a huge group of people. And um, and of course, you know, the the succession, the quick succession of suicides that we had seen. But I think definitely in in a strange way i think it made people kind of appreciate law enforcement a lot more and kind of say you know i think we need to come together as a community and uh, as a nation and kind of find a way to work with law enforcement um and see that they are stressed and they we need to work together as a team Hi, uh, thank you so much for being with us tonight. My name's Leah and my Hi, question is, you've mentioned in previous interviews that while you previously supported President Trump, you now blame him for the events of January 6th. What is something that you wish you could tell every Trump supporter? Yeah, that's a great question too. Uh, thank you for asking that. Um, so um, I've been very careful about getting too political when I do interviews um, and getting into the throes of why I supported Trump because I really don't wanna get into this whole political narrative because then it takes away the focus of uh, why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, but uh, having uh, experienced what I have, I've seen firsthand uh, the man and what kind of person he is. Um, and that, and I'm not saying, I, I do wanna make clear, and I try and do this too in interviews that I wasn't blind before. In other words, I heard the terrible things that he said. Um, and there were things that he said and did that I didn't 100% agree with, but you only have two candidates to vote for. 
And so my, my point is, is that um, some of the things that I did agree with and that made me support him more than the other candidate, um, even on those things, he's a fraud. So what I'm trying to get across to the, the public that still supports him is that, hey, listen, even the things that you're supporting him for, the man is a fraud. Oh, and by the way, he also, uh, you know, is, is a terrible human being to boot. So, uh, I mean, he claimed to support law enforcement and back the blue and all this garbage and didn't even have the courage to face me or to uh, take the time to even write a letter to say, hey, I'm really sorry for the loss of Brian Sicknick. Oh, and also, you know, uh, he claims to support the military and military veterans. And Brian was a military veteran. I'm a military veteran. And, you know, he couldn't even do that either. So it's just more and more evidence. So I really want the public to see that he's, he's a fraud and he's extremely dangerous. Um, he may be charismatic or occasionally crack funny jokes, but our democracy is really at risk. Um, and he's a dangerous man. So thank you, Leah, for your question. Hi, thank you again so much for coming to speak to us. Um, I'm Isabella. In previous interviews, you've said that you do hold President Trump 100% responsible. And so I was just wondering what would accountability and justice look like to you? And what have been those challenges that you've faced in speaking up for, for justice and accountability? Yes, yeah, so thank you for your question. Yeah, justice for me would be seeing him in prison. Uh, and unfortunately, um, the man has a gazillion lives. I don't know what it's going to take for him to be held accountable. Um, I do have some uh, surprising news. I wish I could tell you all now, uh, but you will find out by Friday this week. Um, so that's kind of um, my avenue to trying to get some sort of justice in the only way that I know how to because I am so frustrated that this man seems to <clears throat> get away with so much. Um, but yeah, so I, I want to see him in prison, but it seems like he can do no wrong. And I don't understand it because he's done he's hurt so many people. Pebbles, I'm sorry. Hi, I'm Alex. Um, thank you for speaking with us. One question I have is you've been in congressional hearing and at trials of those who were part of the mob. What have you learned about Congress and the criminal legal system and how have they impacted you? That's a great question. If you want my honest answer, um, well, first of all, I would say uh, the hearings were very eye-opening. Uh, the hearings um, were very important because uh, I think they, and I, I have a lot of respect for the members of Congress uh, that were um, doing all they could to try and get justice um, for not only myself, but for the officers that were there that day, the innocents that were in the building that had to experience the horrors of that day, January 6th. Um, and just the public at large, I mean, the nation, um, who were terrified of what may happen. They voted fairly and uh, to see their votes uh, potentially not uh, be certified is, was terrifying. Um, 
but I have to say I am um, cynical, and I've said that in an interview uh, because there were some things that I would have liked to have seen happen that uh, didn't. Um, for instance, Jenny Thomas uh, was one person that I think kind of, um, well, not kind of, she did really, she needs to speak to the public. Um, I think there's answers that we deserve. Now, I will say I did some research on Jenny Thomas and I did not know that she was very vulnerable to um, cults and things like that. Now, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. So I do know that some people are more vulnerable to uh, cults, persuasion, things like that. There's just some brains that are more vulnerable to those kinds of things. So I do have some empathy in that regard. And I think there were some people that should have protected her and seen what kind of path she was going down. Um, and some of you may feel differently and I certainly have respect for that, but I'm just saying for me personally, um, so, but that doesn't mean that she still doesn't owe us answers. So for instance, it came out in the transcripts that she said she was embarrassed about her text messages and all of that. Well, that's fine, but she needs to tell all of us that. You see what I mean? There's other members of Congress that need to be held accountable for their actions. One person that comes to mind right away is Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, she is somebody who, excuse my language, just has a big mouth. Uh, and has the nerve to say she's a victim of January 6th, but she says very inflammatory comments. Um, so I probably should be quiet. <laughs> um, you know, so things like that. So I, I don't know what that's all about uh, with the January 6th committee and, and things like that. But, um, but again, I have respect for the committee. I have respect for members of Congress that, you know, went the extra step to do what they did. But I think there was more that could have been done, and I'm not sure why it didn't. But at the end of the day, it ultimately sits with the Department of Justice. And I'm not sure if Merrick Garland is afraid of Donald Trump. I'm not sure what the intricacies there. Kara may have more insight in that than me, or, or maybe more discussion she's engaged with you guys about that. I don't know what it is, but it seems like there's a lot of people that are afraid of, Mer I mean, of uh, Donald Trump. I, I don't. I don't get it. Hi, Ms. Garza. Thank you so much for being with us uh, tonight. We appreciate you. all of your information and insight here. Uh, my question for you um, is, what is your response when members of Congress or people in the media or just other everyday citizens downplay or excuse the actions of rioters? Yeah, so that really makes me angry. That's an excellent question. Um, it really is insulting. Um, and uh, it really makes my blood boil, to be quite honest. Uh, it's as if they're spitting in Brian's face um, and all the other officers who not only took their lives, but all the officers who were injured uh, and fought to defend democracy. Um, but it's particularly hurtful when it comes from members of Congress that defend rioters. So when it's the media or like I've seen terrible comments written about me on Facebook, Twitter, things like that. I mean, it's it's hurtful. I'm not going to pretend I'm invincible. It doesn't bother me, but it's like, eh, you know, some troll, whatever. You can dismiss it. But it's more upsetting when it's a member of Congress that is defending this because a rioter, because it's like, you know, I'm sorry, but um, 
my boyfriend died protecting you. And there was other officers that died because they were so traumatized to protect you, your life. You get to go home and be with your family. Uh, so that's an excellent question. Yeah, it's infuriating. It's very upsetting. I, I will say that um, I, I, being a clinical social worker, I do again have some empathy for some of these people, not the ones that are narcissistic and say, oh, I didn't do anything wrong and I'd do it again and that kind of stuff. But I think there is this kind of, um, this mass kind of brainwashing for some of these people. They're vulnerable. They believed in Trump and um, they thought at that time they were doing the right thing. Not for all of them. Some of them were sadistic and uh, they knew exactly what they were doing. They had an agenda like the Oath Keepers and things like that. Uh, but some of the others, I, I don't know. I'm not inside their head, but I just wanna really emphasize that I'm an empathetic person. And I think that some people did get kind of swept away, but it doesn't mean that we still don't have to face consequences for the actions that we take, whether we feel remorse or we feel terrible or there was a reason behind it. Sandra, I wonder if I could ask a follow-up there. You've mentioned a couple of times now that you know some, some people who were there um, or others like Jenny Thomas involved um, you know, may have characteristics that make them more vulnerable to to cults i wonder just you know for those of us who who don't really know what those characteristics are or what those vulnerabilities are if if you could just share that a little bit with us yes thanks for asking that carrie yes yeah. so one thing that um i have uh been doing a lot of research on and actually i just read an article today because i subscribed to uh, the adverse childhood experiences newsletter um, but is just that adverse childhood experiences or people who just have genetic vulnerabilities. So there's some brains that are more genetic or excuse me, more vulnerable um, to certain things due to genetics. So for instance, some of you here may be more vulnerable to cancer more than some of your peers in school or heart disease. Um, you know, or depression, or anxiety, or, um, you know, whatever it might be, right? And then someone else may not be. Some of you may be more vulnerable to developing addiction than someone else. Um, and the same is true for certain things like that. Some people, due to their vulnerabilities, are more easily susceptible to certain people who are very charismatic and manipulative and people like Trump, right? They could promise you the world and say I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread and people who are vulnerable. And then on top of it, maybe have lack of meaning and purpose in their life. That can be very seductive. Um, and, you know, so that's what I mean by having empathy for people like that. It's only when the fog clears and the consequences come into play uh, then it's like, oh my gosh, you know, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Now I realize not everyone is thinking like that. I think Mike Fanone said it best when he said that uh, he had gone to uh, one of the uh, uh, trials or the sentencing phase. I can't remember which it was, but I think it was the sentencing. Um, and one of his attackers said, I'm so sorry for what I did. You know, I feel a lot of remorse. 
And, you know, the family was saying, please, to the judge, you know, we're, we're really sorry, we feel terrible about it. And then the minute that, you know, he was walking outside the courtroom, the family was saying, you know, you're a piece of garbage and, you know, we hope you die or something to that effect, right? Those people don't feel any real remorse. They're not sorry for what they did at all. Um, so there's difference, differences, you know, there, you, but you don't really know that until in, you are actually talking to the person or, you know, they have to feel it inside, you know, but, um, but there are those people that truly do feel, there's some people that truly do feel embarrassed for what they did and, you know, um, wish that they could take it back. I can tell you the people that do feel that way aren't the ones that are saying, I'm going to write a book about, you know, storming Capitol Hill, <laughs> you know, I mean, and especially if I did something that resulted in someone taking their life, my gosh, I mean, how anybody could feel, oh yeah, I'm so proud of what I did. And yeah, four officers took their lives. I'm so proud of what I did. You know, that's not having any empathy or remorse. Um, in the first televised primetime hearing in mm -hmm. uh, last last June, I believe it was June 19th. Yes. Um, and <clears throat> Caroline, um, uh, Caroline Edwards testified mm -hmm. and, and um, she was with uh, Private First Class Sicknick. And also mm -hmm. she testified alongside um, Mr. Quested, who is who was who was doing a documentary embedded with the Proud Boys. Yes. Um, and he sort of revealed in that hearing, you know, just how much he knew about, you know, caches of weapons and, you know, sort of plans to go to the Capitol. Um, I wonder what your reaction was sitting there listening to especially those two testimonies back to back. And it seemed like it was something that was entirely preventable that even an individual person knew about and yet for mm -hmm. the sake of a documentary, you know, didn't call authorities or stop it. And then yet is the key witness <laughs> at a hearing. Yeah, to me, uh, clearly the guy was thinking about himself um, and his documentary um, and it was disturbing. Uh, me personally, I would have called authorities, like you said, you know, I, I would have been horrified about that. It, it was upsetting that he didn't do anything, that he didn't take any action, but I don't, I'm assuming that he probably had some kind of written agreement with them that, you know, I'll film you. If, if you let me film you, everything is confidential. But at, at the end of the day, it's like, where's your moral compass, you know? I mean, uh, yeah, he could have he could have warned somebody. He could have done something. Um, and you know, it's it's interesting that you brought that up. I have not. I've been very careful when I talk to Caroline. Caroline and I keep in contact. We text each other, and I am careful about what I ask her because I know she she has her good days and her bad days. But I don't. I know what happened with her and Brian I know that really bothers her when she her and I have in the years that I've been communicating with her she has only discussed it one time with me from beginning to end with the exception of what happened during her testimony but the reaction that she saw 
with Brian and um, everything that happened that day. Um, and, and I mean, I'm fine with it because I don't want to relive that anyways, you know, but I mean, so I'm very sensitive about what kind of things I ask her, but that is an interesting question to ask her. I would be curious as to what she would have thought about that, you know, um, what her reaction would have been, what her feelings would have been sitting there listening to that. But yeah, I mean, it is disturbing that and there was actually multiple people that could have said something and could have stopped it. And they didn't. Ms. Garza, first of all, th thank you for sharing your story and your insights mm -hmm. with us. We really appreciate it. It's very helpful. Um, this is kind of a broad question, but one that we all really want to know your answer to. Um, what is the most important thing or things uh, you think can or should be done to prevent another violent event like January 6th from happening again? That probably is a question, I think, for the entire group. Um, and I'm curious actually to what you guys think of it <laughs> because um, what I was thinking of is uh, I was talking to a guy who lives in England and he was giving me his reaction about what happened here. And he said, you know what? That stuff never would have happened at parliament. He said, we've got you know, security around the clock at parliament. He, he said, they can't even get through the gate. He said, if somebody was trying to climb over the gate, they would be shot on sight. That's what he said. And, um, and I said, I said, yeah, he said, that's how they need to do it here. And I said, well, here it's the people's house, you know? And I said, but I get what you're saying. I mean, we wouldn't have had the tragedy that we had, had we had, you know, better reinforcements that, you know, maybe like, you know, how they did when they had the National Guard came in. I mean, we had more people, obviously, we had more manpower. But if we had gates all around, steel gates, you know, something like that, and they had the authority to use deadly force of someone, kind of like the White House, right? Um, it would be different, right? So, but I don't know if maybe something like they bring in the National Guard during uh, certifying the election something like that so that something like this could never happen again. I don't know. Um, that's, it's a tough question. Um, we probably wouldn't wanna do it like England has all the time because it is the people's house, but maybe something temporary when they're certifying elections so that we could never have something like that happening. I'm sorry, Booker. No, 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 you're so fine. Um, I just want to say thank you again for making time for us tonight. Um, and kind of like a question that we had was, when it comes to the role of public education, what responsibility do you believe that people such as us, um, since we're working on like public education projects and kind of like the wider media who have like this large, um, consistently influential audience have in sharing the stories and experiences of people that were directly affected? Um, by the insurrection of January 6th? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think just talking to people, whenever you have the opportunity, talking to people, I think sharing what you're experiencing here, listening to me, and I know I think Harry Dunn is going to talk, and I'm sure I think there's other guests. I think Kara has lined up for you, sharing what they talk about with others. I think actually everybody has a responsibility to share um, the knowledge because so that we can ensure that, you know, this never happens again. 
Um, I think when people bury their head in the sand and say, oh yeah, this will never happen. Our democracy won't be taken over. Uh, we'll never be like other countries that you know um, are anti-democratic. That's when um, trouble is brewing. Um, and before you know it, we will be in real trouble. So I think uh, it's everybody's responsibility to keep the discussion going and share what you know with others. Sandra, thank you so much for taking the time. We know you are working full time and um, also this is an important week and, and anniversary. Um, we are thinking of you. Well, thank you, Kara, for having me. It was a real pleasure and it was really nice meeting all of you and thank you for your questions and for allowing me to speak. I'm honored to be here, really.